Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series, held on August 1, 2018, providing a deeper dive on the mechanics of the new BEAT provisions and selected issues. The panelists for the webcast were Alex Falashko, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues, specifically value chain transformation, Catherine O'Brien, a PwC tax principal focusing on transfer pricing issues, Christy Turgeon, a PwC tax principal focusing on accounting method issues, and Oren Penn, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues. This excerpt from our Tax Reform Readiness webcast consists of a general discussion about the impact of cost of goods sold and pass-through payments and the various doctrines relating to those payments in determining a company's beat liability. Have a listen. Christy, should we jump in? That'd be great. Um, the super exciting cost topic of, of cause, yeah, COGS exception. How um, broad is this exception? <laughs> Can you so I think it is very narrow in mm. its overall scope. So as, as we were saying earlier, cost of goods sold is an inventory concept. So cost of goods sold, it's not a deduction. It's an exclusion from gross income. So above the line, not below the line. So it makes sense that it would not be a deduction, a base erosion payment. Um, however, cost of goods sold as defined in the, in the code and the regs is inventory. And inventory under case law are goods held for sale. And it is typically tangible goods held for sale. So if you have products, you're in. If you have services, there's no cost of goods sold. Licenses, leases, you don't sell that underlying property, not likely cost of goods sold. Um, intangibles, there's some questions. Um, sometimes intangibles are considered inventory if they're reduced to a tangible medium like a DVD or a CD or a book. Mm-hmm. Those are inventory. But now the world is moving to ebooks and downloads of software. And so we don't have off the shelf software anymore where the government had said that treat that like a good. So a lot more complications on intangibles, um, but difficult because a lot of the intangible property they don't want to sell. And the basic premise of goods held for sale, you're not there. Um, so once you're in, because you have goods held for sale, then the application of Unicap is very broad. Um, historically, the government, you know, is encouraging you to capitalize costs because generally it's going to have an um, adverse timing effect because you capitalize costs of your inventory, it gets deferred until that inventory is cost of goods sold. So what once you're in, you capitalize direct costs that are directly related to or incurred by reason of your production activity, which is effectively everything except selling and marketing. Um, I'm exact, you know, overgeneralizing, yep. but it's it's very comprehensive. It includes um, sourcing commissions. It includes, I think, uh, manufacturing services like tolling. That's a production cost. It includes licensing costs, including royalties. Um, whether they're sales-based or not, generally licensing costs, if they relate to the production know-how, for yep. example, um, would be included. If they relate to just purely marketing, maybe not, and so you have to look at that. Um, but for the most part, royalties are, are usually capitalized, and the IRS historically has required taxpayers to capitalize royalties. Um, there is one favorable exception for sales-based royalties where you can treat them like a production cost if they relate to your production, but then allocate them entirely to cost of goods sold. So it doesn't get caught up in inventory. There's no adverse timing effect. So that is kind of sort of win-win. You get the cost of goods sold designation without having to capitalize it to inventory. 
Um, and there's also very favorable rules for GNA costs. Mm -hmm. Favorable in the we want to capitalize more. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking at GNA that's even just tangentially related to production and you can capitalize it all. Um, there are two kind of issues in besides just getting in. Um, one is may require a method change. If it changes the timing of um, income or deductions, you have to change your method. Generally, it's automatic for Unicap. Um, and even if you're just changing presentational from deductions to cost of goods sold, the IRS has in certain instances like sales-based royalties treated that as a method change. So we're generally advising just file a method change to be safe um, for those. Uh, so consider method changes so that we don't just lose the planning opportunity. And then the other side is um, looking at the implications of now having all of these costs and cost of goods sold. Yeah. What else does that do? And I know Catherine, you were going to talk a little bit about. Catherine. Yeah, I'll just touch on. So the important observation on the, the cost of goods sold is more that you put into cost of goods sold um, to extent you're importing a product into the U.S., you may be increasing the amount that's subject to your customs duty. And so there's certainly 10, uh, 1059 cap A does um, tie the two in, in that you have a cap on what you can include in cost of goods sold, essentially whatever your basis is. Um, or inventory cost to that that you have included for customs purposes. And right. so there is that tension there. So if you include a lot more costs, you need to be consistent right. under, because 1059 cap A, I think, will make it non-deductible or right. Right. Sorry, you, you create an excise tax if, right. Right, right. if it doesn't match. So which, that which definitely has become a much bigger deal for many of our yes. clients because right. of the trade disputes and there are no oh, tariff on things right. that may have not been subject to tariffs. And so I think there's a, there's a potential. We've seen already some cases where there's just a whipsaw effect as people are pushing to capitalize mm -hmm. and find more cogs on one hand but then get potentially hit with uh, a higher duty exposure as a result of dutiable assists. Yeah, you just need to do the analysis and figure out which is going to be the more effective yeah. approach. And then the, the, the other thing, um, Catherine, I'd be curious if, if you've seen is it seems like with what Christy just talked about, there's more now need to really sit and, sit and ponder what are the components of that payment. Like, you know, even if the entire payment might be arm's length, but really understanding the components because some elements may or may not be capitalizable into inventory, right? And like the example we talked about might be a royalty that's maybe meant to you know, reallocate residual profit, which might compensate for a variety of things, including you know, marketing intangibles, et cetera, et cetera. So right. while from the pricing perspective, you may you know, measure it and support it, but Christine might tell us that depending on what that compensates, a piece of that may actually not right. be capitalizable. Right. right. It has to be directly related to and created right. by reason of your production or right. your resale activity. So that's just so, an extra step that you And there's the exception yeah. selling marketing. Yeah. So if it's marketing or selling based intangible, there may be some risk in that. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, let's continue with this discussion about sort of federal tax accounting determinations um, and talk about the pass-through payments, the different versions thereof. Yes. So when you're not in cost of goods sold, um, so services definitely licensing, leasing, every you know, other items that are not cost of goods sold, um, we have a lot of clients that are looking for alternative arguments. And um, the the most generally, when you receive income um, or you have cash, it's income under Section 61 unless you can prove otherwise. And mm -hmm. um, there's a whole body of law that if that in, that cash that you've received doesn't give rise to an accession to wealth or economic gain, then it's not income. Um, and so if you're getting a payment that you then have an obligation to pay to somebody else, 
um, if you can you know, fit within one of these doctrines, there's no accession to wealth, no income under Section 61. And if you have no income from the receipt of the payment, you also have no deduction from the outflow of the payment. No deduction means no beat. So it ends up having a net effect in your income and, and avoiding the, the beat um, base erosion payment. Um, so definitely very helpful doctrines when you don't fit in the cost of goods sold exception. And we have a lot of clients that are looking to see if their current structuring fits within the doctrine or alternatively, should they consider changes to their current structure um, to be able to, to fit within it. Um, the, the theories are, um, there's, there's various theories. Uh, there's a theory of agency, um, which generally applies when you are a disclosed agent. So you are telling everybody, I am an agent for my foreign related party. They're going to perform your services. They have all the rights and obligations yep. of the performance. I have no rights other than as an agent. Um, you have to disclose it. You have to act in that regard. Um, there's some some factors in Supreme Court cases that we have to make sure you satisfy. If you satisfy those rules, um, pretty solid in terms of the the conclusion that you would not have income and deductions. But there, it is a pretty high standard, um, and your facts and your documents definitely have to support that agency relationship. Um, the the other items are um, cost reimbursement, which is somewhat similar maybe mm -hmm. to the services cost method, but the cost reimbursement doctrine, um, whole body of law, where if you at the time you take or take a deduction or otherwise would take a deduction, you have a right to reimbursement, then you can't take the deduction and as a corollary you have no income from the reimbursement. Um, it's a similar theory that there's no accession to wealth because you have cash and you have an offsetting obligation to pay that cash to somebody else. Um, so no income, no deductions, um, whole body of law again. Generally, it's applying when you're sharing costs. Um, it can't apply if you're performing a fee for a service and incurring your own costs. So there's a, a fine line mm -hmm. of if you're in the business of performing the services that you're sharing, then it may be harder to argue that this is actually just a shared cost as opposed to a cost of doing business, which would give rise to income and deductions. Um, so if there's certain like administrative kind of sharing of costs, which it fits squarely in, and then when you're actually doing something like R&D and you're doing it for yourself and you're doing it for others and you're selling it, then maybe a little bit more gray as to whether you fit. Um, there's also a theory on a conduit. Um, seven up case, affiliated foods, et cetera, uh, where you're just a pass through. Like I'm taking their money and I'm giving it to someone else. I have nothing to do with it. It's not my cost that I'm sharing. Mm -hmm. I'm just a conduit for someone else's money. No, no accession to wealth because again, I have an offsetting obligation. Um, and then the other doctrine that we've been looking at is the revenue share doctrine. Um, again, whole body of, of case law that support a theory that if you, before you earn the dollar of income, you have an agreement to share it, uh, that it's not income and not deductions on the payment out. Um, the revenue share doctrine generally applies when everybody has their own assets, so your own employees, your own building. Um, the, the seminal cases relate to putting a, a, a jukebox in somebody else's building and you pay them a percentage because of that, the rent that you, you've done, for example. So um, sharing, uh, of your income related to your own assets that you've used is generally where that applies. That case, as well as all of the others, you have to be careful about creating partnerships, which generally, if you're showing revenue, hopefully is okay, but you should look at that. An assignment of income, the overall concept, if it's your income, you can't assign it to someone else and, and not recognize it. So those kind of underlying doctrines are all kind of competing. 
Um, definitely gray area, um, very dense body of law, but definitely could provide some opportunities. And even the, the body of law that you referenced, Christy, like I know from looking at it already, uh, a number of these cases are like really, really old and they're really, really factual. And some of them are like not even income tax cases, right? Like you mentioned the jukebox case, right? So it's really just being careful and understanding the facts, what the contract says, what the actual behavior of the parties. And, and, and am I right in that a lot of these, you know, theories, doctrines, and arguments, it's really a taxpayer's burden to establish it, right? Like it's really on the company to like, does Absolutely. this really apply or not? So yes. I mean, you have to look way. at your facts. You have to look at yeah. your agreements. I think a lot of them, like agent, for example, it absolutely has to be a written agreement right. that, that provides that. So yep. um, definitely very fact intensive. Yep. Let's look. I think we have three. And, um, and also yep. just a caveat, that's assuming this long body of history of law, which has been there forever, does not get overturned with the government's that's a new great, rules. That's a great so point. So you have to, I mean, with yes, this is the law now, but you just never know. Yeah. So. Let's quickly, we have three, um, you know, very simple but very, very common examples maybe to illustrate the points that Christy just made. Catherine, you want to take the first one? Sure. So what, what this example is trying to capture is a very common practice for large U.S. M&Es, um, foreign M&Es as well. But, but it's that you have a netting center. And the reason for using these was, was, is really twofold. One is administrative ease of kind of you know, handling all of the intercompany payments. But the other is to mitigate your exposure to um, uh, foreign tax authorities asserting that there's duplication of services. So to the extent that the U.S. is providing services to the foreign related party and that's your, let's say, your global HQ, you might have a regional HQ, you might have a local HQ, mm -hmm. and you may have foreign affiliates that are just providing one-off services. Rather than the foreign affiliate getting 15 different invoices, all with legal services and accounting and the like, um, giving sort of ammunition for the tax authority to say that they are duplicative. They all run through, in this case, the U.S., and you get one invoice. Great, um, great deal more success doing it that way. But the question is, does this, does this sort of fall into the conduit mm -hmm. concept, right, where any payments that are made to those foreign affiliates are um, captured. Yeah, I, hopefully if it's foreign to foreign and just going through the U.S., you have, it's not your cost you're sharing, you have no assets that are getting reimbursed, it's not your business. And I think conduit theory would probably be the most applicable. Obviously, you'd have to look at all the facts of the agreements, but that to me makes the most sense. And mm -hmm. perhaps it would allow you to avoid the fact that maybe some of those costs are marked up. Um, I think you had mentioned that uh, sometimes the foreign jurisdictions require a markup, and when you have markups, it's a lot harder to argue cost reimbursement. So if there's some going to the U.S. With, or the other way with a markup, um, it, it's harder to say, I just have, you know, there's no accession to wealth when you actually do have that markup. But if it's just going through the U.S., then it seems like there's an argument there. Right, and the issue you're sort of highlighting is if it's not U.S. Corp., that's the netting center, but it's, let's say, it's a foreign corp in Ireland, it's an Irish corp, and they are collecting all the bills from the foreign affiliates and then passing that on um, to the U.S., and, the US and they pass it on at cost, right. is that, but, but the foreign affiliate payments, you know, sort of are at cost plus. So I've got Ireland to foreign affiliate cost plus, Ireland to U.S. charged at just cost. Do you it, have to look through? I mean, right. I, I think these are questions yeah. that are, you know, unclear. In, in, and we certainly have a number, I mean, this is a very, very common fact pattern, as you said, for the reason you said, and just administrative convenience. And I think the other question that comes up a lot is, 
like in this example where the U.S. company is actually in a business where they're incurring costs similar to the ones that are being passed through, right? So there's right. a lot of so complexities. So cost reimbursement doctrine you can't really apply right. if you're in the business of performing right. the services for which you're being reimbursed. So practically, so. practically, at least to me, in this particular model, definitely, you know, arguments. It's really, it really pays to understand the arrangement, the contracts. Uh, there are a lot of times arguments that can be made. A lot of times, you know, the comfort level, you know, is is really questionable. And we know, like, a lot of companies are actually looking at potentially, you know, setting up that clearinghouse, you know, so functionality nice. outside the U.S. So let's look at the second example really quick. Um, the second example here is the global contracting model. And we made it sort of intentionally simple-ish. Um, <laughs> well, what's depicted on here is, let's say it's a U.S. company that has a global framework agreement with, a global customer, and let's say the, this is a services company and the work is done globally around the world, including by this foreign-related party, and let's assume, you know, stipulate that a foreign-related party has its own work order with the customer directly. So let's say the work order spells out, you know, the work, the scope, the fees, the deadlines, etc. Um, and then the U.S. company also acts as a logbox to, to receive payments from a customer. So in this example, we're showing U.S. company receiving $100 from a global customer pursuant to this framework agreement and the work order, and then maybe a U.S. company retains $10 to compensate it. Let's assume it's arm's length for whatever work yeah. it done, and then it remits 90 to this foreign-related point. <coughs> Christy, your reaction as to, you know, what... I mean, this is the most common fact pattern yeah. that I've seen. Uh, so definitely seeing where this could be a problem if you have a bead payment because you're keeping $10, $10 and all and of a sudden it's 100 And the magnitude of remittance is huge, um, yeah. Right. So, uh, and anything where any time where you're passing things through and it's not cost of goods sold basically just comes up services licensing leasing etc um so i think here it's likely not a cost reimbursement sort of argument because their us is likely in the business of performing the services for which they're getting paid so it looks more like a fee for a service and you have to be careful that's not a the us is not on the hook so that they're just subcontracting to the foreign related party if they're subcontracting and they're on the hook and they're the principal in the arrangement and the global customer just knows them, yep. its income and its deductions. Um, so the work order going to the foreign related party, I think, is is very helpful in our example. That you, doesn't always exist, and in fact, I think I usually don't see that. But if there is a work order that separately lays out foreign related party has all the rights and obligations, U.S. is just the agent, then you likely would have a good argument for. Um, that what's going through the U.S. to just be so that no income theory might actually get a exactly. from that being exactly. a base eroding payment. And then, as you point out, a lot of times it's really shades of gray, right? Like, what if, for example, there is no direct work order between a foreign mm -hmm. you know, affiliate and a global customer, but what if U.S. company contracts with that customer using the words, you know, ABC, that's defined as ABC Inc., and it's global affiliates, you know, that just raises a question, like, maybe, is there an argument that maybe de facto there is an agent? I mean, it just gets right, a lot of right. I know, mean, it, obviously, it's better you, if you can say as right. agent for them, and the more you can spell out the rights and obligations and who has responsibility, um, but demonstrating better. that privity of contract between foreign-related and the customer is, would be essential to is that agency. It's very, argument. very helpful to yeah. an agency argument. Yeah. I mean, the other, yeah. sorry, the other argument would be revenue share because yeah. the revenue share is 
applicable when each person is using their yeah. asset. So here, presumably, foreign related party mm -hmm. is performing because it has its employees or its IP or whatever yeah. it is that it's giving. So that those cases aren't as strong, perhaps, as agent because agent is two Supreme Court cases. But there is case law that maybe that you could argue that you're sharing revenue. Yep. And there, there could be PE, PE implications. That's a great if, point. Sure. Once you start seeing yeah. designated as an agent, there yep. could be other things going on, even though you're managing beats. So that's a great point. Lots on. of things to keep yep. track of. Um, we, we kind of touched on revenue sharing. Um, should we keep moving? I want to I want to make sure we get to SCM unless you want to say quickly about this model. The, the only thing I'd highlight is there's a difference between revenue sharing and profit sharing. And and yep. to the extent that you are doing profit sharing, there are concerns about Partnership. partnerships and and some other issues. Um, it, it's currently the thinking is I think the latest thinking is that profit splits are subject are beat payments to extent you're settling whereas revenue again depending on if you fit in the four corners of the the doctrine would not be it may not be i mean i think the key is assignment of income you have to make sure that you're not just it's truly your assets that you're earning the revenue from so yeah, yeah and then to the extent the payments being received demonstrating the restrictions on what you can do with the asset right, right? that kind of goes to the heart of the whole claim right. of right um Think that's very useful. Obviously, a lot going on in, in this area, and I'm sure your phone is ringing like off the hook as we speak. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.